0: Packet pushers.
1: Hey guys, welcome to episode one of Packet Protector, a new podcast at the intersection of security and networking from the Packet Pushers. I'm Jennifer JJ Manella and I'm here with a face and a voice familiar to many of you, Drew Conry Murray. Hi JJ. Hey I know this is new content, so here's what's going to happen. Each week, we're going to be talking about a couple of different news headlines and topics to keep you up to date on the latest trends and what's happening in the world. We're going to be talking about different technical and strategic concepts that you can put to work. And we're going to be bringing in different practitioners and experts to give you their informed perspective. So whether security is your full-time job or just one of your many responsibilities, We want Packet Protector to be a useful resource for you.
0: That's absolutely right, JJ. We do want Packet Protector to be a useful resource for you. And on today's show, we're going to dive into WPA3. That's sort of the meat of the show. Before we do that, we are going to do a couple of quick takes on some news. First, Microsoft has announced a cloud PKI service for its Intune endpoint management offering. Microsoft Cloud PKI is going to let you set up a public key infrastructure in the cloud so you can do things like create certificate authorities and manage the certificate lifecycle for certs issued to devices managed by that Microsoft Intune service. Uh, JJ Jay, you pick the story. What jumps out to you about it?
1: I'm looking at it and I'm like, it's 2024, people. Where was this five <laughs> and 10 years ago? We've been moving to the cloud. We've had all of these different SaaS offerings, including Microsoft 365, the Azure Suite, uh, Intra ID, as we're calling it now. And one of the things that has just completely boggled my mind is that for those of us that are tasked with, you know, setting up these different infrastructures and architectures, there hasn't been a way to do PKI or any type of certificate issuance over the cloud as a service. So you could certainly spin up a full server instance in the cloud with a sense as a service and then spin up the entire service set and server set and then you know, spin up the PKI services from that. But right. that actually had to be a different domain, an entire different ecosystem than the domains you were using for Microsoft 365. So it was clunky, it was expensive, and it was just really not a reasonable ask.
0: Yeah, this does seem like it's an opportunity to streamline what can be a very complex setup process and also operational process. So it's interesting to see Microsoft doing this. A reminder, though, you have to be using the Intune service from Microsoft to operate this.
1: It's not just a general PKI for everything. Yeah, it does look that way. I'll be curious to... To see what they do. But it looks like they're coming out of the gate here now in February with Microsoft Windows, Android, iOS, and Mac OS. So that, you know, obviously covers a lot of the different endpoints we're dealing with. Yeah. So whether it's, you know, Wi-Fi, VPN, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's a great place to start. And there are a lot of organizations managing most of their fleet with Intune. So it's certainly better than nothing.
0: Yeah. And just again, a reminder that it's going to be available in February, 2024. Our second story for today, we're recording this episode in mid-January. So by the time this comes out, maybe a little bit of old news, but HPE is acquiring Juniper Networks for $14 billion. And this took a lot of people by surprise.
1: Yeah. And I don't think it's going to be old news. I think we're (laughs) going to be talking about this throughout the whole year because my God, like the community is up in arms about this. I don't think anybody saw this happening. There was no foresight here by even the analyst industry. I've had a few conversations privately with people and their jaws are all dropping. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting. I certainly think we're going to have some culture, product portfolio adjustments to make across these two, you know, large companies. Yes. So I've had a relationship with HP on the networking side for about 20 years at this point, a little over 20 years. So I've seen them pre-procurve, through the Calubris acquisition, through the H3C, through Aruba acquisition and everything else. So this even surprised me. And I think it's going to be interesting because I love the Juniper MIST AI platform and I love a lot of what HP and Aruba have been doing for for 20 years. So it's going to be interesting when these two products. And these two teams collide. There is a lot of overlap. So I think everybody's going to be speculating in the next several months about what that's going to look like. But the deal is not going to legally close until probably the end of this year, early next year. So everything is speculation up until this point.
0: What did you hear from the wireless community about this? Because I know that Aruba has its passionate users and so does Juniper.
1: (laughs) Passionate is such a kind (laughs) word. Yeah. It's all over the place. So I think with any population, whether it's uh, the teams, the customers, Field teams, inside teams, product development, et cetera. You're going to have reactions all over the place here, and I think we're seeing that. So we have some of us that are very hopeful that HPE and Aruba are going to be able to take the best of uh, what's happening in the Juniper ecosystem and absorb that into the portfolio. You certainly have, you know, customers. It doesn't matter if it's Cisco, Juniper, Aruba, whoever, who chose that vendor for very specific reasons, and they might have had a a large outlier recently and they're not happy. So let's say, you know, somebody said, okay, I went with Juniper because I didn't want to be an Aruba customer. Now WTF, you know, I'm, I'm back at square one. Right. So the reactions are kind of all over the place. You know, it's an emotional time for people. People are worried <laughs> about their jobs. They're worried about their vendor relationships, right. but it'll settle out.
0: Yeah, curious to see how this develops, and I'm sure we'll be talking about it more uh, as the year progresses. But let's dive into our main topic, and essentially what we're going to be talking about is WPA3, that is Wi-Fi protected access, the obviously version 3, and the goal here is to sort of talk about why you should be using it and maybe give you a quick start guide to actually getting it off the ground. So, JJ, if you can give us a quick overview, what is a Wi-Fi protected access and how does it differ from WPA2?
1: Okay, I'm going to give you guys that, the highlights here because there's a lot of books, blog posts, articles that go back to, you know, WEP days 25 plus years ago, and that's just not helpful. So, you know, WPA3 is the latest security suite. And this is something that impacts everybody, whether you're a home user, but certainly more significantly in the enterprise and business networks. And so that's just the third generation of this new suite of WPA, Wi-Fi protected access, which is defined by suites of protocols that are specified in the IEEE standards for 802.11. But the Wi-Fi Alliance is who creates the terms and certifies against things that have Wi-Fi in the name. So Wi-Fi Protected Access and WPA3 is then certified by the Wi-Fi Alliance for conformance by the vendors. And really, all it is is it's the security mechanisms that we're using to secure the wireless network in different ways. So whether it's a passphrase-based network, so you you click to join something, and a little pop-up on your screen says, "Okay, enter." a passcode or a passphrase, that's considered a personal network, a Wi-Fi or WPA3 personal, previously WPA2 personal. If it's 802.1X and we're doing a full authentication, then that is a WPA3, that's the current generation, enterprise network. Um, And you might see that represented different ways. You might see it listed as WPA3-802.1X. And then there's the open networks, which don't require authentication to join the network. And these are typically like your guest portals where you just click, you're on, you may get a captive portal experience after. So those are the three main types of the networks that we're dealing with. And the role that WPA3 has in this is adding some level of security and typically integrity to each of these kinds of networks.
0: Yeah, let me just go over those again. WPA3 Personal, that's essentially a passphrase-based network. WPA3 Enterprise, that's where I'm getting the full-blown 802.1x with the client and everything. And then WPA3 open, again, it's an open network, like if I'm in, you know, a big box store and I'm writing on their Wi-Fi. Exactly,
1: yeah. Okay. And again, you won't see them always uh, represented like that. And so just as maybe a little tip to the listeners out there, it does get a little bit twisty. So because I mentioned that the WPA is an intellectual property and a certification from the Wi-Fi Alliance, technically to list something as WPA whatever, WPA2, WPA3 dash enterprise. Mm -hmm. That product would need to be certified by the Wi-Fi Alliance. And so to get around that, if they're not certified, you will see vendors that do just different combinations of words. So (laughs) (laughs) it's very confusing. And I could probably get on a soapbox about that. We're trying to get them to standardize on this a little bit better. But yeah, the the terminology is a little bit crazy. But those are the three main ones. Yes.
0: Okay. So if you're looking for WPA3, you want to make sure whatever gear you're buying has that certification from the Wi-Fi Alliance.
1: Ideally, yes. And even if it's not certified yet, if it's primary enterprise vendor, if it's, you know, Cisco, Meraki, Aruba, Juniper, any of those business class Mm -hmm. products are going to have this supported. Okay.
0: So we're talking about WPA3. Obviously, there was a WPA2. What's different between these two standards?
1: The biggest difference is going to be on the passphrase network. But before I get to that, actually, let me talk about the one or two little things that are sort of consistent across all three of those classes. So again, kind of that open, the passphrase, and that enterprise 1x. Mm -hmm. The thing that WPA3 brings is different types of encryption and protected management frames. So the protection of the communication between the access point and the end point, which has been a little bit crazy as a security professional watching this, that we haven't protected that communication. So what that means is a lot of the things that we have happening in Wi-Fi happen from an attack perspective because of different spoofing. So packets are spoofed from the AP, packets can even be spoofed from the endpoint. And up until now, there's been no mechanism to prevent that or even really detect it well. And so that protected management frame, there's some confusion in the market right now about that. Most of what it does is actually that it adds integrity Which is just saying, hey, I know that that packet, I know that that request came from the access point that I'm attached to and that is legitimate. But there are certain frames that are also going to be encrypted. And now that's a different can of worms for <laughs> external and third-party tools because you, you can't see what's happening uh, in that payload because it's encrypted. But most of this traffic from the infrastructure down to the endpoint is just going to be an integrity check.
0: Okay, so the general idea between four protected management frames is that I'm authenticating that communication between the client device and the AP so that I as a client can be confident I'm not connecting to, say, a spoofed AP or a you know, a decoy AP that I'm going to then lose sensitive information to?
1: Yes, kind of. So the one little caveat that is we can't really establish a trust relationship until after the association and the four-way handshake. So in the Wi-Fi world, there's this kind of ubiquitous four-way handshake that happens between the endpoint and the AP. And so it's after that point and the keys are exchanged that we know that's that's the ap we want to attach to so if we're talking about backing up from that in the scenario you gave of hey let's make sure that we're attaching to an ap that's that's known and that's ours and it's not a rogue or uh, a malicious you know man in the middle attack we would need to do some other things like validate certificates right for an 802.1x network but once we're on the network what we typically see is that there are certain classes of denial of service attacks that malicious user could come in and spoof. And actually, Drew, let me interrupt myself for a second and say, we've been legitimately using spoofing in the WIPs world, in the wireless IPS features, Mm -hmm. the mechanism by which we would say to an endpoint, hey, don't connect to this rogue AP or to this guest network uh, or to whatever, to this neighbor network, it's sending spoofed deauthentication packets or sometimes disassociation packets that are spoofed. And so this notion of protecting that so that we're, we're joining the network that we expect, uh, we can validate that with certificates and, and other mechanisms. And then if somebody tells us to leave that network, we're going to make sure that we're checking and that it's the AP we're connected to, not somebody else sitting over here to the side.
0: Okay. So that's protected management frames. That's one of the differences between WPA3 and WPA2. Or I assume there are others.
1: Yes. And I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty too much. So protected management frames has a long list of other features and benefits to protect like against replay attacks, uh, and it goes on and on. But yes, the meat of that is it's going to Validate the integrity of that communication. So that's true across the open networks that are using enhanced open, the passphrase or personal networks, and the enterprise networks using 802.1x. Mm-hmm. But I mentioned that that real kind of juicy meat when we get from WPA two to three, that real upgrade we get for security is on that passphrase or personal network. And even though we call it personal, most business networks. And when I say most, I'm talking high 90 percentile here, have a passphrase-based network somewhere and typically more than one. Mm -hmm. There are very, very few exceptions to this, you know, having worked in wireless for 20 years. And the best way to describe it is that for a long time, I think anybody that's configured anything with wireless knows the acronym PSK.
0: Pre-shared keys.
1: Pre-shared keys. Yeah, I think everybody knows that. Um, And that's because with WPA2, the passphrase that you entered in to join the network was the encryption key. Mm -hmm. There's a few issues with that. Everybody has the same key. uh, If they're joining with the same passphrase, the cryptographic key length is then determined by the passphrase key length. And, uh, you know, eight has been the minimum. So if we say, you know, password is the passphrase to get onto the Wi-Fi network, our cryptographic key is only 8 characters long which is uh, pretty atrocious in the world of security yeah. so that's been wpa2 world and the wpa3 world that psk function is replaced by something called S-A-E, simultaneous authentication of equals and don't shoot the messenger. I don't know where they come up with these (laughs) names, but it, it changes that mechanism so that it divorces the passphrase from the cryptographic key in meaningful ways. And so what it means is that it doesn't matter if the passphrase is short the actual cryptographic key is going to be an appropriate length for it to be strong. And then there's other mechanisms as well. So it also issues, so it's basically seeding uh, additional things into that cryptographic function, um, including elements that will let each device have a unique cryptographic key. And so what that means is that if a passphrase is um, either brute force attacked. Uh, on a, a WPA3 network or it's given because it's written on the whiteboard sitting you know, behind somebody, we can't decrypt other devices' packets. We can join the network and there's definitely risk associated with that, but we can't decrypt other device packets. Uh, and then there's a few other things that pile onto that. With WPA3, the attack does have to be an online attack for brute forcing this password. And that's very different than WPA2. So basically in the WPA2 world, which is where still most most networks are sitting. Uh-huh. And that's why we're we're talking about this, you know, now hot and heavy. We've had WPA3 for a few years now, but it has not been implemented because it's not very straightforward.
0: Hello, listener. Getting into the cloud? Well, that's easy. It's what you do once you're there where things get interesting. On the Day 2 Cloud Podcast, hosts Ned Bellavance and Ethan Banks, that's me, explore the nitty-gritty of cloud operations from tooling and automation, resilience and security, visibility and cost management, and more. We talk with technical leaders, practitioners, trainers, and consultants on all aspects of cloud operations to equip you with the information you need to address tech and business challenges in the cloud. So whether you're public, private, hybrid, or multi, let Day2Cloud be your guide. Listen at PacketPushers.net or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: So in the WPA2 world, all of the medical devices that are connected in hospitals, all of the manufacturing automation devices that are connecting uh, in different manufacturing, all of those things, somebody could sit in or near your environment, they can collect traffic. They can watch it. They can do things to actively speed up collecting the, the, the traffic that they need. And then they can air quote, go offline and run some tools and brute force and reverse engineer the passphrase. It's not hard. It takes a few seconds and I'm, you know, can't see me, but I'm air quoting offline because there are online services where you can pay a few pennies and have this done in a matter of minutes. Right. And as a network owner you don't know that that happened Mm -hmm. so that's substantially different than wpa3 where an attack on the passphrase would have to be an active attack and you're going to have indicators throughout the networking uh, monitoring that that's taking place and you should be able to stop it so that's huge
0: would one of those indicators be someone making repeated attempts to log in that's not working what kind of signal should i be looking for
1: Yeah, I think we should put together maybe a little guide offline for this. But yeah, there are several things that can be configured in the the logging and alerting, and especially in WIPs tools and some of the the WIPs tools integrated into the products. Um, And this is something I'm kind of working with several manufacturers around to, to help make sure those mechanisms are easy and built into the product and that the users know to go enable them if they're not on by default.
0: One thing I think to note here is that simultaneous authentication vehicles or SAE is replacing pre-shared keys. But the reason people have things like PSK is because there are devices you can't put a client on for whatever reason. It still needs to attach to a network. You referenced medical devices, industrial devices. Uh, So I can still attach those to the network, but I get a higher level of security now. Exactly. Yep. Okay. Sounds like some good things in WPA3. I assume everybody's using it. We're all set, right? Everybody's happy now?
1: No, <laughs> no, it is rarely enabled on business networks, but that's part of the drum we're beating trying to get that to change now.
0: And is this hard to do? I mean, when we're talking about things like certificates and encryption keys and so on, I'm thinking, do we need to set up a PKI? How all this happen? The complexity starts to grow when you start talking about these things.
1: It does. um, But I would say from the infrastructure part and the user part, whether you're using WPA2 or WPA3, a passphrase network still works. The same way. Uh-huh. There's no learning curve for the user if the user manually entering it. Uh-huh. And the same thing with 802.1x. Whether you're using password authentication or certificates, it's going to be the same user experience and the same device experience. You're just getting the the added benefit of the additional security on it. So from the experiential standpoint, not a big difference. But from the back end and all of the network engineers and architects that are managing this system, um, there are some substantial differences and stumbling blocks, especially on devices that are connecting with that passphrase.
0: Okay. So let's talk about them. And then what are my migration challenges of WPA3?
1: The first few are that it's just as simple as a checkbox in the products. And again, this is a ubiquitous statement across all products. You're going to see an option for WPA3. Mm -hmm. There's also an option for what's called a transition mode. And I'm Transition mode here has a capital T and a capital M. This is defined by the Wi-Fi Alliance, as opposed to, you know, Jen's word for a migration plan. Right. So when you see WPA3 transition mode, that specifically is saying that SSID or that network will allow WPA3 and WPA2 security. And so I think most of us would go, okay, no big deal we've done this before. If we're just trying to figure out, you know, what devices support what, let me just put this network on WPA3 transition mode. My WPA2 things will be happy. My WPA3 things will be happy and the world will be a very happy and wonderfully secure place. And that's just not quite how it's working.
0: So is this an issue with clients? Do they need to be upgraded? Do my APs need to be upgraded? How am I getting this transition?
1: It can happen in a few ways. There's actually three or four different hurdles or challenges of why an endpoint might not connect to a WPA3 or even a transition mode network. And I'm going to downscope for just a second and say most of what I'm about to talk about is going to be specific to the types of endpoints that would be connecting in a passphrase network. Mm-hmm. And But I, I want to be very intentional with this language. This does not just impact passphrase networks and it does not impact all devices that might be on a passphrase network. Uh, And I can kind of clarify as we go through this, but the first big issue that we saw, and this is actually a little bit of a carryover from when we first initiated our new roaming protocol, 802.11r, or fast transition, several years ago, this issue popped up, and that is that some endpoints just won't connect if they see multiple AKMs being advertised from a network. So AKM uh, authentication and key management suite. I think the best way to describe this is like, if you're walking, you know, through a major city um, and you see a sign in different languages, Uh maybe it's like a a Metro sign, right? Um, If you're used to seeing English and the sign also has a bunch of uh, text that's in French, these endpoints are going, well, There's more than one language here. And even though I can see the English, I know English, I'm not sure. Does the French say something else that, that is contradictory? I don't know. So if there's multiple AKMs being advertised, some of these endpoints just kind of, they just don't even attempt to associate.
0: So they won't even pick one they maybe used in the past. Correct. That's interesting.
1: Yeah, and that's a that's probably the less common issue at this point because when we had this new roaming protocol a few years ago, the way the roaming protocol was implemented is there was a different AKM advertised. And so, you know, any of the devices that were updated through that process are going to be able to support multiple AKMs. And that's not a problem.
0: Are these devices we're talking about that have issues with AKMs? Do they tend to be smartphones and laptops or do they tend to be things like medical devices and whatever that may not be getting regular software updates and so on?
1: At this stage, at this one bullet I'm talking about with uh, the problems of the multiple AKMs, typically these are less robust, headless IoT type things, Mm -hmm. which is why I'm saying most of the, you know, With the caveats, most of what I'm describing is going to happen on a passphrase network. Now, the next piece, which is becoming a little bit more common recently, is that, okay, let's say the endpoint got through that whole roaming thing back in the day and it's fine with multiple AKMs. The next little hurdle is maybe it hasn't been updated recently enough to understand that second language or third language in this case, or fourth, depending on how you have the network configured. And so it's okay with multiple AKMs. So maybe there's English, and then now it knows French, and there's French, and we're good. But perhaps now there's also, I don't know, Russian. And the endpoint goes, well, I have no clue what that is. So it's not that it's just multiple AKMs. And maybe if I correct my first analogy, because I kind of combined them both together, in that first analogy, and if the endpoint was saying two different English listings and it knew English, it would Mm -hmm. still just kind of spaz out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now we're at the point where it's okay with multiple, but it doesn't understand the other languages. And so this is a different issue.
0: Okay. So that means it may not select the key library that would be offer the most protection.
1: Well, it won't even try to associate.
0: Mm -hmm, Okay.
1: It just spazzes out. It nopes out it does not attempt. So these two issues are very related. They're almost the same thing. There's a, just a slight nuance of that. Is it that it's multiple AKMs or is it that it's an AKM that's in a air quote language it doesn't understand? So those are kind of wrapped into the endpoint then just says, I don't know what to do here. And it does nothing.
0: These are things that again, folks should be looking out for as they're transitioning from WPA2 to WPA3.
1: Yes. Then you get into some of the stuff that's a little bit easier, which is, well, maybe it just hasn't been updated recently enough and it can't join a WPA3 network or a transition mode network. And because we've had WPA3 for several years, the chances, if an endpoint can be updated and you've done that, the chances are very good that it's going to support WPA3. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, back to your original question of what all endpoints does this impact? It's hard to predict this ahead of time But typically, if you're talking about a user-based standard operating system, if you're talking about Apple and Windows and Android, those things are getting updates typically, right? Right. And we have less problems with those. And I say less because it is not a zero.
0: It's never none.
1: But the things like smart plugs, smart lighting, HVAC controls, things like that, it doesn't matter if it's residential or consumer or if it's enterprise grade. This is just kind of the thing that happens across all of that endpoint population if it's not getting regular updates. So
0: if I am interested in moving to WPA3, am I having to set up new infrastructure? Uh, Am I having to worry about generating keys and deploying certs and all that? Or does that just happen sort of in whatever YLAM infrastructure I've already got set up?
1: You can deploy WPA3 wherever you are. And it's really just a matter of being methodical, intentional about it. And just knowing that there may be certain parts of the endpoint population that aren't going to play nicely to start with. And so cutting to the recommendation with that, I would tend to say if you have enterprise, specifically 802.1x networks, Uh you have a high level of confidence. And let me caveat, 802.1x network in an environment that you're managing the endpoints to some degree. So a business environment versus something like a university with eduroam where you don't have control over the endpoints because students are going to bring whatever random crap they have. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. But in a typical business environment where you are to some or full degree managing the endpoint and you have control over it and it's on 802.1x, you can typically go ahead and put that into a transition mode. In your Wi-Fi product, you'll see which endpoints are connecting with WPA2 and which are able to do WPA3, and then you can go back and make some decisions about updating the rest of that population, getting everybody on WPA3, and then moving to a WPA3-only network. And depending on the size of the organization, that can be done usually pretty quickly. I would say in a small organization, you could do that in a matter of a a few weeks. Uh, In a larger organization, of course, it could be, you know, months or more, just depending on your reach and how consistently those endpoints are are coming into the environment but mm-hmm. that's an easy button right there
0: okay so 802.1x where i'm essentially managing my devices an easy way to start that transition to wpa3 it is i'm wondering if there's a temptation among folks to just sort of live in transition mode <laughs> where the easy <laughs> stuff is on wpa3 and the harder stuff i'm like i'm not gonna worry about it it's not wpa2 we're all good
1: yeah, I mean that's always a risk, and it's one of the reasons why there are several people in the industry who really hate transition mode. They think that it shouldn't even be offered. Mm. I'm kind of of the mindset that, you know, having worked in organizations of of all sizes, uh, some having you know many hundreds of thousands of endpoints, it's just not reasonable to go around and, and touch everything all at once. And you can't stop the business operation just because you want to. Sometimes availability and usability trumps security and it's up to the organization to make smart decisions about that not up to you know standards bodies to to implement
0: you can't just turn off the hospital for the day to to switch over
1: yeah exactly yes. yeah
0: so if i'm making a plan to move to wpa3 it sounds like maybe i i definitely need to have an up to date inventory to understand you know where my devices are and what i might need to worry about in terms of this transition
1: I think an inventory is always a great place to start with anything. If I'm being realistic here, you know, the best bang for your security buck here is going to be on the passphrase network. Getting an inventory of passphrase connected devices is nearly impossible to actually know what the things are. I mean, even in a home network for people that have labs, if, if you don't manage, you know, Wi-Fi in your business environment, you see you've got all of these different things and trying to figure out what they are if you've just onboard them all together at once is almost impossible even in a home network with a few dozen devices mm-hmm. you'll see you know okay it's some you know chinese network interface manufacturer every once in a while you'll get you know something says it's apple or amazon fill in the blank um, but there's a lot of that other stuff floating around so getting an inventory and knowing what it is whose it is where it is and what it's doing is probably going to be nearly impossible and remember you know What I said was on the passphrase networks, if those devices don't like multiple AKMs Uh and or they don't like the AKM that they don't understand, they don't attempt to associate at all. And so if we just pause that for a moment and we dive into what that means for a network engineer, there's no indicator.
0: It's essentially invisible. Yes.
1: It's invisible. There's Uh nothing in the logging that's going to tell you that a device failed Uh because it didn't attempt
0: Okay. Wow. Oh, boy.
1: So that's kind of the sucky part. So, the, you know, certainly this passphrase uh, personal network class is where we're going to get the biggest security increase, but it's also the hardest mm. to migrate from WPA 2 to 3 because of these challenges.
0: Final thought before we wrap. Is this something that I, as either the wireless or networking team, could do myself or the other f- folks I should think about pulling in?
1: Sure. I mean, you could definitely do it yourself if you needed to or wanted to. Um, But I think in organizations that have, you know, some of us, I'm sure anything that has an IP address, you're probably responsible for it, even if it's making toast. But others of us work in, you know, organizations that have different teams responsible for different things here. So, you know, if you are that one man band, at least maybe have a conversation with your user population or whoever you report to so that they understand it's a bumpy road and Not to, you know, chop your hands off for being on the keyboard when you're trying to fix things. But if you're in an organization where you have peers and other groups, I would definitely talk to everybody from your help desk, understanding if, you know, what challenges or trouble tickets people are putting in throughout this process before it and after it. If you're dealing with, you know, Radius and 802.1x, you want to make sure you're involving that team because Mm -hmm. there are additional options in WPA3 for that. And then, you know, anybody else involved in supporting the user and endpoint population. So, you know, if you're in a hospital setting, you want to talk to clinical engineering and you want to do testing before you just click a button.
0: Great. Yeah, I bet the help desk will definitely have a list of devices they hate that you may want to know about.
1: Yeah. All right.
0: Uh, That does wrap up our inaugural episode of Packet Protector. Thank you, JJ, for doing this with us. I'm excited about this show going forward. We've got a bunch of links in the show notes, uh, including some videos from JJ talking about WPA3, going into much more detail about some of those things we talked about, like SAE and management frame protective management frames. Um, So we'll have those links in the show notes if you want to get more details if you're thinking about your WPA3 transition. Um, JJ, in the meantime, how can folks get in touch with you uh, on the interwebs?
1: I think the easiest, so I'm JJX on all of the various, feels like 50 different social media (laughs) platforms at this point, like Twitter and uh, Blue Sky and Mastodon. Yeah, um, but I think the consistent place is I do try to post on LinkedIn. So I'm pretty easy to find and follow there.
0: Yeah, same for me, Drew Conry murray on LinkedIn. Uh, thank you for listening. You can find the show notes for this episode at packpusher.net. And while you're there, you're welcome to join our Slack community where you can hang out virtually with other IT professionals, ask questions, share advice and tips, and swap useful links. As always, thanks for listening.